0: Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually help you discover and then live your why. You see, we believe that knowing your why, that driving force behind every decision you make and every action you take, is the essential first step to really knowing yourself. It allows you to move forward faster and have a bigger impact. If you're already a fan of the show, then you know that every week, we talk about one of the nine whys and then we introduce you to somebody with that why so you can see how their why has played out in their life. This show will be more powerful for you if you've already discovered your why. If you still need to do that, head over to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. It'll only take you about five minutes. Now, let's meet today's guest. Today, we're going to be talking about the why of challenge. Now, if this is your why, then you live outside the box. You do not believe in the norm or following rules or drawing inside the lines. It is far more natural for you to rebel against the stereotypical or classical way of doing things. You aggressively seek unique ways of approaching the world and finding solutions that no one else has considered. You like to create and innovate, especially in game-changing ways. You have eccentric friends and eclectic tastes and a large variety of both. You may have diverse interests with little in common with each other. As an entrepreneur, you prefer to Create a new market versus serving an existing market. You love to be different, think differently, and challenge virtually anyone or anything that is too rote or conventional. People with your why often accomplish amazing feats. When you say you want to change the world, you actually mean it. Pushing the envelope comes natural to you. Now, today, I've got a great guest for you. Her name is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Now, she is a clinical psychologist. She has practiced for 26 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas, earning the 2009 Arkansas Private Practitioner of the Year Award for her volunteer work at a local free health clinic. She began blogging and podcasting in 2012 to destigmatize de- mental illness and educate the public about therapy and treatment. With her compassionate and common sense style, her work can be found at Huffington Post, Psychology Today, Psychology Central, The Mighty, the Gottman blog, and others. She hosts a weekly podcast, the Self-Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and her new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, is published by New Harbinger, Harbinger and available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble and your local bookstore Margaret, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, that's a mouthful.
0: (laughs) Yes, it was a mouthful. I was stumbling myself. So take us through, how did you get into becoming a psychologist? Take us back in your life. Maybe give us the, the couple minute version of where you started and how you decided to get on this path that you're on.
1: Sure. Well, actually, I was a professional singer in my twenties. I sang jingles, for, uh, studio TV advertisements, you know, radio advertisements. Wow. And, uh, I, I made a decent living at that. I wasn't probably the premier people, but I was definitely one, one lady said to me one time, you make You'll you'll learn you'll earn a living if you make the premier people sound good. So that's what I tried to do, but I really didn't like the lifestyle so much, Gary. It was a tough lifestyle to live, and it wasn't really bringing out the best in my personality. So I heard about this thing called music therapy, and I'd been in a lot of therapy, so I knew that I really admired the process. Um, so I plopped all the money I had down in the world to SMU and I ended getting a, a music therapy, uh, a certificate or degree, really. It's, it's a degree for sure. And, but my last internship was in a psych hospital. And I thought, oh, I saw these psychologists at work. And I thought, no, 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 this is what I want to do. But I had not been a psych major in college. I'd been a French major of all things. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, very helpful. So I, um, so I uh, went to take psychology courses and tried to uh, do well in them. And then, by darn, I got in a program or two. And uh, I think they took me out of a sense of curiosity. Here was this singer who I actually had right the night after the interview I had a big band gig at a hotel and and they wanted me to stay and I said no I gotta go front of front of band and they were like what in the world so anyway I think that was mainly how I got in but I'm darn glad I did because I've absolutely loved being a therapist.
0: And so you got out and got into private practice right away, or how did that work?
1: No, um, I was in private practice in Dallas for a very short period of time, and then my husband got a job here in Northwest Arkansas, so we moved, and I was just telling the story. In fact, I hadn't told it in forever, and I, I uh, interviewed several places when I got here. I interviewed three different places, and I got all three jobs, <laughs> but they were, they were all part-time jobs, so I was driving all over the place and um, started my little private practice at the same time and lo and behold you know 27 years later i'm still here and so i i love this area i it was way far behind dallas as far as acceptability of, of seeking treatment and seeking therapy so i've tried real hard to address that and and also to when i started the blog and then ultimately the podcast it was really to try to present to people what what's the therapist sound like? What, what 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 do they think like? So that perhaps people could listen to that podcast and think, well, now this might be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that means the most to me is when somebody writes in and says, you know, I'd never considered therapy before, but after hearing self-work, I, I think I want to try it out. So I'm very pleased about that. So you want
0: people to think differently about what psychology can do for them? What
1: I do. I, um, you know, it's kind of funny, Gary, because nobody in my family ever went to therapy. But I remember in my early twenties, so that would have been in, well, let's see, early twenties would have been in the latter part of the seventies. I went into therapy myself because I was dragging around a bunch of stuff from my childhood that just, I could tell it was getting in my way. Had a wonderful experience. Um, which is several therapists along the way in my 20s because my 20s were pretty darn chaotic, frankly. And they helped me see the way. And then I, but so many people uh, just think of it as weakness or that they don't want anybody to know. And I, you know, one of the things I often say is you go to a dentist because you can't fix your own teeth. You go to... Um, you go to a, a tax accountant because you're confused about how to do your taxes. Mental health practitioners are simply people who've spent hours and hours and hours studying and listening to people. And they have their own wisdom perhaps, but they also have the wisdom of all those people they've seen. And so I've often said, I feel like a conduit between people I've seen in the past and people I'm seeing now because I can pass on what other people have very... Uh, learn in a very, very difficult way. And I, so I like to kind of think of it as a consultation where you don't lose your power. In fact, if anything, you gain another perspective, and that helps you make stronger, clearer decisions.
0: Mm, I love that. And so, you started self work that was in two thousand twelve.
1: No, that was in two thousand sixteen. I started oh. blogging in two thousand twelve, oh, yeah. and then I, uh, by that time, I was I had written the book. I was writing the book, and we were we were trying to get the uh you know publications you know trying to get publicity people or whatever uh publishing houses thank you it's it's friday morning (laughs) (laughs) trying to get publishing houses interested and they said well you know what nobody knows who you are you know you're not in la you're not on a university uh, faculty you're not in new york you're in arkansas (laughs) so how in the world and i had a few thousand people on facebook and instagram and all that stuff but But I'm also too old to do anything, Gary, that I don't really enjoy doing. And so I listened to podcasts. I thought, I'll be back in front of a microphone. I love using my voice. And so I thought, okay, I'll do this. Well, I'm almost at 1.9 million downloads. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, almost really, it's amazing, and um, I, I love doing it. I hear from people from all over the world, and um, it's it's very meaningful to me. So that is a uh, is, is something that that I got the chance to do and the opportunity to do, and I'm just so pleased and uh, very honored that so many people listen. So
0: what do you talk about on your podcast, Self Work?
1: Everything. (laughs) Uh, There's some areas of psychology I don't know very well. Learning disabilities, I don't know very well. Uh, I'm not a KDAC. I'm not an alcohol and substance abuse counselor. So I may touch on it, but it's not my expertise. Um, So what I try to do is really bring up things that either relationship issues or facets of of self-improvement or self-growth, self-work, so to speak, that are sort of how-tos for people. I'm a very, as a therapist myself, I'm very direct. I'm not exactly solution-oriented because certainly I see people for as long as they need to be seen. But I also believe that you don't get hope from insight. Insight is wonderful. You get hope from behavior change and so when you see yourself acting thinking saying things that mean a lot to you and that you realize are not because you've had a some insight or some understanding and all of a sudden you're acting differently and i think that's where your hope comes from so that's what i really stress if anything from you know the imposter syndrome to the phenomenon of gaslighting to um how to uh, respond to a partner who has an affair how you heal to um, some parenting stuff, not too much, to mostly just what are you f- trying to confront in yourself, and how do you do it
0: mm, yeah what um I'm wondering if there are now that you've been doing it for for twenty seven years do you see common themes? do you see the same thing playing out over and over when you sit down with somebody is it a is it um Are there just a certain number of actual problems, but they manifest in different ways? Have you categorized anything like that?
1: I've done a lot of trauma work in my lifetime. You know, it's amazing to me, Gary, how many people will say to you, oh, I don't have any trauma in my life. You know, I, in fact, the book is written for people who count their blessings so much that they forget that even blessings have their underbellies. So I work a lot with people recognizing Whatever level of pain they had in their past or they have in their present, because it's so frequently denied or discounted, laughed away. Um, and you know, the strategies we come up with in childhood, uh, keep us safe in childhood. Um, if you have a a parent, an alcoholic parent, and you grew up raising your siblings, then, and they didn't, they weren't there for you, you learned, well, you know what? If it's not there, I don't need it. But if you take that adult that childhood strategy into your adulthood, then the problem becomes that strategy doesn't work for you anymore. In fact, it can be quite devious and, um, and self-destructive. So it's about figuring out what kept me safe, what kept me sane in my childhood and what, it, do I still want to use those rules? Do I still want to, uh, create a life that's based on that strategy or how do I need to change that strategy?
0: So what is the goal of therapy? I see because what I, is there such a thing as a perfect life?
1: No, <laughs> absolutely not.
0: There's such a um, who hasn't experienced trauma? No,
1: there, there, there's, the trauma people will say there's big T and little T, meaning big traumas are like tornadoes ripping through your house or you being raped or you sexually abused or something like that. I mean, that's obviously big T, but there's a lot of little T's. You moved a lot. Um, you had a learning disability. You were bullied. You were... um uh, gosh, I mean, I had a neurological disorder when I was born and I had I was very different from the rest of the kids there for a while. So or I had to be treated differently. So, um, you know, that's a little tea for me. Um, didn't ruin my life, but it changed it. So I think that if people recognize that, what, what therapy is, actually in graduate school, I'll never forget one of the first classes we took. What is a therapist? A therapist is a change agent, you know, basically you're, you're given simple explanation. You're, someone walks in your office and they say, this is what I'm not appreciating in my life. I don't like it. I know I'm creating this or this is being done to me. And it's about how do I begin to look for what I have control over and then, and then change that behavior, whether it's overeating, whether it's drinking too much, whether it's, whether it's never talking about your feelings, uh, being closed off, whether it's not knowing how to make friends, whether it's, um, having sexual dysfunction. I mean, there, I mean, there is, there's so many problems that we all have. Um, that it's just about someone sitting in front of you. And again, pulling from their experience and then trying to help you find your own strengths so that you can address what's going on. Now, there's a type of therapy also that is sort of a, it's more in the relationship itself. For example, if you were, um, if you grew up in a home that was really devoid of any kind of intimacy or nurturing, then often the, the relationship you have with the therapist, it being very nourishing and nurturing will sort of help you understand and heal from your own childhood. And then, but the point is that doesn't just happen between the therapist and the client of course appropriately but it also begins you you begin to learn how to achieve that or gain that with other people so a lot of times what what you're trying to create in the therapeutic relationship whether it's trust whether it's um, revelation of pain whether it's Feeling, claiming your own competence. A lot of people can't even claim their own strengths. But if you can do that in the therapeutic relationship, then the goal is to take that outside of the therapeutic relationship and be able to find people that you can trust and that you can have more enriching, fulfilling relationships with. So, um, therapy is a, is a very complex it's unlike any other relationship you'll have in your life because it's not about you taking care of the therapist or it shouldn't be. <laughs> it's yeah. about the therapist being very attuned to you and what you need in the moment and where you're going and where you're telling her or him you want to go.
0: Mm. Do you, um, so what then becomes the goal of therapy? Where? Where is there like an end game? Is there like a place we're trying to get to? Um, you know, I think about, let's just take business, for example, if, if your focus in business is all about not having problems, if all you focus on is the problem and not having problems, how do we fix this problem? How do we fix this problem? How do we fix this problem? The best you can hope for is no problems, (laughs) right? But if your goal becomes the vision and the future and where we're going, then your future looks a whole lot better than just no problems sure so what is the goal of therapy
1: well i think everyone's goal is a little different um i don't have a cookie cutter way of doing therapy i mean i don't have a set of criteria that you must meet that are my criteria to claim that your life is now healthy (laughs) okay so i would never uh that's presumptuous of me now they are hiring me or asking me to help them uh, tune into what may be causing problems and they don't know what's causing them so you know i always believe in trying to just because you have a problem doesn't mean you don't have lots of strengths. And so you, as a therapist and what the goal of therapy is, is to make sure that you're using the strengths that you have. And if you, if you don't have the coping skills you need, a therapist can actually teach you some skills. Um, and you can try them out. I give homework assignments all the time to people to say, okay, you know, you've, you're shy and you find it difficult to talk with people. You don't look people in the eye. Then your assignment this week is to walk around the grocery store and well, pre COVID, <laughs> this was my assignment and to try to look people in the eye and say hello. That's all you have to do. Perfect strangers. And so and then some one person came back to me and she goes you know how many people avoid your glance <laughs> when you glance at them at the grocery store it's hard to get people to um to 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 um look at you so i think that a goal of therapy is simply i mean i ask people what do you want this therapy to help you accomplish mm-hmm. and if they say i'm too isolated i need to learn how to be more comfortable with people or i'm unhappy in my marriage or um I I have this thing in my past that I've never told anybody and I don't even know if I want to but I'm here. So it's it's about creating safety. It's about creating a space where people can share their most vulnerable parts of themselves and you hold it and you hold it carefully and then you help them begin to use their strengths to see what, now that they've done this thing, now that they've revealed themselves um, more clearly, then what do they want to do with that? How do they want to move forward? And that's not my decision to make. Um, my decision is not to say, I think you should get divorced or I think you should stay married or I think you should, um, you, you should or ought to do whatever, unless I'm hearing really, really self-destructive stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I'm hearing really self-destructive stuff, I'll say, well, you know, I'm not sure this is rational on your part. And let's look at that. Let's look at what, let's take this apart and see what's really in your best interest to think or feel and what may may be destructive for you to do so Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a relationship that is different from any other relationship you'll have because it's only about you or it only should be about you and it's about then the therapist getting out of the way after you've done some of your healing and encouraging you to go out in the world and be more the person that you know you want to be and you can be
0: and it feels like pretty much everybody could use that.
1: Well, I mean, I'm a therapist because I got, well, I got some bad therapy, but I also got some really good therapy. So I, I'm a firm believer in it. I mean, it's, it's more about. You know, there are people who have actual very severe mental illness, severe chronic depression, severe PTSD, or even moderate PTSD, or eating disorders, or I have panic disorder, I have panic attacks, and I used to be anorexic. So, you know, those are real problems that need real attention and, and, and techniques to help people handle those kinds and to manage their illness and that's certainly something that mental health professionals do Mm -hmm. it's not just all life growth stuff you know but there are also many people who don't really experience the that don't fit a criteria for true clinical uh diagnoses but are struggling so um you know, not creating the life or being very down on themselves about the life they have created or or again, some things can be happening to them. Like um, if you're getting, uh, if you're a part of domestic violence, then sometimes, you know, you have to see it for what it is first. So yeah, I think everybody could use therapy, but probably um, it's just like sitting down and getting another perspective and and hopefully a um, a competent perspective
0: yeah reframing the problem reframing what actually happened
1: right 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 right
0: yeah you i know, recently well i guess it was a year ago now but i um i went through a, a situation where um i took a couple of advil and i and i when i rarely take anything and anyways i it it burned a hole in my stomach right where i had an artery and i ended up oh my in the goodness DR. i ended up being um and they made me wait so long that i that I almost died and a bunch of stuff happened to me so uh, hit my head. And anyways, I uh, I was there for nine days in the hospital. And it's yeah. a, b- a very crazy scenario of everything that could go wrong in a visit to the hospital kind of went wrong for me. Did
1: go wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so
0: when that was all over, I noticed that I was struggling to put words together or struggling to remember things. And so I had a friend who who's um knew this guy who was the world's expert on post icu syndrome Mm -hmm. which i never even heard of yeah it's definitely like a thing yeah i certainly i flew out to see him in indianapolis because when like right now at let's say you're over age 40 or 35 you have trouble or at least i did sometimes you forget words or you you know don't put things together just right and you know i'm just getting older no big deal but when you've been through something like what i went through and suddenly i couldn't remember names or couldn't put words together you can tell yourself that it's something that it's not
1: yes you know what i'm right. saying and so you, i was you google it and you'll scare yourself to death <laughs> exactly so i was
0: kind of spiraling down myself i was like what's wrong with me something's wrong with me something wrong in my brain my father died from hitting his head my mother died from hitting her head and then i hit my head
1: oh, my i goodness. was like
0: something's not right here it's trauma <laughs> That's what yeah, that is. You know, i went to work one day and I had two different shoes on and i turned the alarm on everybody just a lot of weird things i was doing so i flew out to see this guy and i went through their whole process and when we were done he said you know what you've got is uh ptsd but as far as your brain working it's fine. It's better than my residence here.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: All I needed was someone to tell me it was okay.
1: Yeah. It had a name. I can't tell you how many people have said, uh, you know, whether you call it bipolar disorder, whether you call it PTSD, whether you call it anorexia or binge purge, I mean, whatever Um even schizophrenia. I mean, people who are who are hallucinating and they don't know what a hallucination is are are scared to death. So, you know, I do think that have, now I do think having a label is is helpful. What we don't want to do as a culture is then say, oh, she's the panic disorder and he's the PTSD. I mean, you are more than your diagnosis. Yeah. Um, when I was got rotator cuff surgery years ago, I heard someone say, oh, she's the rotator cuff in three. And I went, I'm not a rotator cuff. <laughs> so, you know, so you're more than your diagnosis, but it can be very helpful because for one thing, there's specific techniques, psychological techniques that help all of these different disorders. So, you know, you that points you in the direction of where you want to go as far as treatment is concerned.
0: Kind of where I was going uh, with that as well is, I wondered what would have happened to me had I never fl- had the opportunity to fly out and see this doctor and find out that I'm okay, because no matter what somebody told me, "Oh, you're fine, you're fine," I, I know you, you're fine. I wasn't fine in my own head until I had an expert tell me through all the you know the MRIs and all the things I went through. They said your brain is fine.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes it, it, it takes a neurologist or it takes a medical mental health team in order to really, um, I mean, I would never want to make the mistake of saying, Oh, it's just your anxiety when really there's an endocrine problem or there's something going on that, you know, really needs to be looked at or a neurological issues. So, uh, I try and I try to not make that mistake and work closely with you know neurologists and and all kinds of doctors private uh, primary care docs and all that kind of thing just to try to make sure that you know if they need a, if they need to just get a, a a a blood test i mean to go do that you know that's not expensive and now an mri is obviously more but um i think any good mental health practitioner would have said you you certainly have whether they knew about post icu or not you have ptsd i mean that would have been very evident to anybody with experience because what you went through was traumatic yeah so and outside of the usual experience of people which is one of the you know criteria so you know but it's funny we're talking a lot about criteria because the reason why i wrote the book perfectly hidden depression was because i know that people whose lives look perfect you asked me a few minutes ago is anybody's life perfect there are people whose lives look perfect And in fact, they have had the, uh, to call it a strategy, it's not really anymore. It may have been very early on, but it has become an unconscious strategy to hide anything painful from themselves. In fact, many of them don't even have words for what are hurtful, damaging, even despairing experiences they had they've been traumatized and they've got it so rigidly compartmentalized that they build a very perfect looking life in order to stay hidden. And unfortunately, what happens if and when they even do try to seek help, um, I, I had a woman tell me last time that she was suicidal and her doctor said, You know you're not depressed you're just too you know you you, you've just got your you speak so well and you you present yourself so well you couldn't be depressed and she knew that she had thoughts about wanting to hurt herself but so you you have to understand and that there is another rubric out there there's another way that that depression presents itself and you have to ask different questions as a as a mental health uh, clinician doctor whatever you have to say to yourself wait a minute would this person ever admit being hopeless and that you hand them that beck inventory and they say no i'm not hopeless but if they were feeling hopeless would they tell you they'd also say no and that would give you a little window into who these people are What I noticed as a clinician was that someone would come in my office and they'd say usually things like, I don't really know why I'm here. I feel kind of silly. And then I'd ask them questions about things. And maybe in the the next session, they really wouldn't say much had happened to them. And then the next sessions, they'd say, You know, when you ask me about sexual abuse, I did, I don't really think this is important, but, you know, I was raped the week before I went to college. This is a true story. And she was smiling as she said it. Um, and she said, you know, I've just never given it much. It was, you know, I just let it go. I never told anybody. But interestingly enough, all her relationships, she had not only had binge purge disorder, but all her relationships were incredibly superficial because at that point in her life, and there were some other things in her childhood, she had just cut herself off from pain. Just not going to feel it, not going to go there. And yet also a lot of these people that I'm trying to reach have these inner incredibly critical voices, very shameful voices, fueling their perfectionism. You know, there's nothing wrong with constructive perfectionism, trying your best. I mean, I'm sure you're a perfectionist. You have really worked very hard on all this stuff, or you have some perfectionistic tendencies so do I, but you know, when it becomes destructive, it's when it's fueled not by desire and a a sense of wanting to learn and be curious, but by shame. I must do this perfectly. I must meet everybody's expectations or I have no value. I must accomplish this or I'm worth worthless human being and often those voices or voices that you heard as a child that were screamed at you or that you came to think of yourself as someone who was only uh only admired for your accomplishment or again you like we said before you grew up in one of those homes that you weren't allowed to say you were sad or angry there are lots of ways to get to Rome sort of but um I know that people are are killing themselves. I, I'm sure all of us, all anybody who's listening knows someone who killed themselves, and everybody goes, Well, I just saw him two weeks ago and he looked fine. Or she just raised a hundred thousand dollars for this local nonprofit. And she looked great, you know, and so it's these people that are wandering around with this inner loneliness and despair because they don't truly connect with anybody. Nobody really knows who they are. And those are the people that I'm so worried about.
0: While we take a moment to give our guest a quick break, I hope you're hearing how important it is to know your why. If you're ready to put an end to your frustration and unlock the code to your personal and business success, then after the show, make sure to head to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. It only takes about five minutes. Let's get back to the show. So I'm really confused. Ah, okay. I'm, I'm more confused than I, than not confused in that it feels like every one must be messed up then there must not be anybody yeah. who is normal and i don't even know what normal is now because if you're a perfectionist you must have had a problem with something if you're not a perfectionist you must have had a problem with something so it's like no matter what somebody what what activity or whatever direction they go there must be something that caused that that was a problem in their life that they're overcoming with this so well, how do find normal what is normal what, what yeah. am i looking for
1: well i don't you know this is a criticism i've heard before oh now you're turning you're turning what is a, a very achievement oriented life into something that's pathological and that's not right there's nothing wrong with constructive perfectionism absolutely nothing uh, and there are a lot of fairly healthy people out there, very healthy people who were reared, uh, well by parents who really loved them and nurtured them, cared for them. And they're, they're healthy. I mean, they don't need to come to therapy unless they just think they would benefit from another perspective. So tell um, me what
0: normal healthy is. Give us a picture. There,
1: there, there's no, there's no definition of that, Gary. I mean, you know, uh, it's not normal would, I mean, we mm, normal, I think, is a word that in mental health would best be uh, would best be stated or defined as probably a fair amount of stability, mental stability, emotional stability, spiritual stability, um, and doesn't really matter how much money you have in the bank, but are are the sort of the leg if you're sitting on a on a, on a stool and the all of your legs of that stool are fairly you know you sturdy and stable then there's no i mean your your mental health is good uh
0: is there such a thing
1: well, yeah, sure. Of course there is. I mean, why would we want to, quote unquote, create a better life or a more fulfilling life if there wasn't a a more normal way or I mean, but there's so many people that will call their lives normal and they're not. They're on some kind of roller coaster in a relationship. They have an addiction that they've denied, Um they, you know, we all look for people that are a lot like us to hang out with. Yes. So we, we'll be able to say, oh yeah, this is normal. If I drink a bottle of wine a night, my friends do. Or if I um, work 75 hours a week, all my friends do. You can convince yourself that something's normal because you look for other people who do the same thing or you work five hours a week, <laughs> you call it normal. Um, so I I really think that... um I'm not trying to pathologize healthy functioning people, but you know, I, I had when I was trying to figure out what this perfectly hidden depression thing was, I would write about it in my blogs. And then I would ask people to please contact me if they identified with it and do an interview, an anonymous interview. And to my amazement, a lot of people did. And I had brain surgeons. I had motivational speakers. I had advertising agency, um, heads of those departments in different ways, all kinds of homemakers, all kinds of people and to a t i asked them why did you reach out to me i mean you've taken this risk you're out in your garage whispering to me because you don't want anybody to know this is going on and they said gary they said because we don't want i don't want anyone else to live their life this way when you're not known when you're not connected with anyone in a true way it's just so lonely and despairing and most of them had either attempted suicide or had some suicidal ideation. You know, the suicide rates are going up exponentially in almost all age groups, so specifically most in men uh, who are 40 to 46 or 7, women who are 50 to 55, and teenagers. I mean, it is a cultural phenomenon. We have never had these many deaths by suicide. So you can blame social media, you can blame you know, people trying to compare themselves with, with what they see on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. But it's also, I think, this uh, perfectionistic kind of trend um, that we we are seeing all over the world, actually. So, you know, does that help your confusion at all? Or are you still confused?
0: I'm still confused because, you know, usually when you're trying to accomplish something, you have a vision in mind of what what health is
1: sure. but, well I would ask I ask my patients how would you define being happy what would be going on in your life that you would you know well I would I would be able to, I have a guy right now coming to mind that he says you know I'm such a workaholic that every time I'm with my family I don't give them enough attention and I would be happier if I had more of a balanced life so we work on, you know, focusing techniques. We work on things to help him better detach himself from his professional life when he's in his, his family life. So normal for him would be, yes, I can go to work and focus on my work, but I also can come home and focus on my family. That's where he wants to go. That's where the balance is. So normal for him is that.
0: Um, I think maybe what, uh, if I had to sum it up, I would say the goal is not to be happy, but to be happier.
1: Well, happy is one of those words that I, you know, although it's very, it's very, um, everybody wants you to use the word happy. Um, I I think that, uh, you know, I love the Buddhist idea of if you cling too much to anything, you know, you know, it will end. Sorrow ends, happiness ends. It's more of a, a, a relinquishing of the idea that I must be happy all the time to more of an idea of, you know, I want to, if I am, if I have a happy day or a happy moment, I want to be in that moment and not worry about, Oh, it's going to end. It's going to (laughs) end. Or if I'm sad, I'm not going to feel so overwhelmed because I know that gradually my grief will, will dissipate. And it's, it's about knowing that life is more in flux. You know, um, I think you asked me a few minutes ago, um, what healing was and i i think healing i mean i'm 66 years old and there's still things that i'm figuring out and i think of healing as a journey not a destination but there is a place in therapy i mean i say very practically it's my job to do myself out of a job so when i have someone who says you know i'm feeling really good and i i like i'm feeling good inside and i like what i'm creating outside that's called congruence you know you you what you want on the inside of you is reflected in your outside life. And, you know, people say, you know, I think I figured this out and I'm good and I want to go practice on my own. And I'm like, great, let's celebrate, you know? Um, so it's it's not just about, it. it's, it's more helping people reach goals that they believe are important. And if through my experience, I believe that that goal could be tweaked a bit, Another man comes to mind, in fact, who was a millionaire, and he came into therapy because he was divorcing his wife. And what he revealed in therapy was that his father had always told him he'd never amount to anything. And he said, what I really want to do is I want to stop working where I'm working, and I want to go volunteer somewhere so that I can feel like there's a higher purpose for who I am. And I said, what would keep you from doing that? And he said, because I still hear my dad screaming at me all the time. And I've got to make more money and more money and more money. And so he didn't go volunteer. He left therapy because um, he said, I just can't do this right now. And I said, and so I was willing, you don't need to work on the divorce. We I mean, that was a, a that was a direction he couldn't go. That doesn't mean he failed. That just means he's still on that journey trying to heal what happened to him between himself and his dad. So maybe
0: the goal then of therapy would be to help people improve the journey.
1: That would be a succinct way of of saying it, I guess. Uh, you know, because you're not I mean, going
0: to change the, the the journey. Is no life, right? It, it all ends the right. same for us. But you're helping us improve the quality of the journey.
1: Yes. I- Again, I think that that quality of the journey is very unique, and so again, it is not cookie cutter. If you if you follow these rules, then you will have a healthier life. You will improve your life. I just I don't believe it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things that I can reveal about myself now that there's no way in the world I would have revealed it in my twenties or thirties. I become much more accepting of vulnerability and, and talking about vulnerability um and i think that as Brene brown often has shown in her research that there's a lot of strength in that mm. um but there's some people that are probably not going to embrace that idea so if you have somebody like that in therapy then what is their version of improving their life yeah you see what so- i mean it's not yep. for me to decide like you must be vulnerable <laughs> or you won't have a happy life. No, then doesn't go like that. So
0: maybe, it, yeah. So wh- when did you decide, um, what, what brought you to writing your book? The, <laughs> I mean just the title for everybody again. Sure. So, or you can say the title. Go ahead. Sure.
1: It's called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, well, actually, this idea uh, found me, Gary. I did not want to write a book. I had no plans to write a book. Uh, I was very happy being a therapist. And yet... Uh, one day I was writing my normal blog and I thought about some of these people that I've been telling you about and thinking how divorced and detached they were from any kind of language, emotionally painful language. And so I started writing about them, what they look like. They look like normal, they look healthy, Healthy. they look stable, they look, uh, yet underneath there are real secrets. Well, that, I called it the perfectly hidden depressed person or you one. I just kind of grabbed that term out of the air and it went viral and then at the time I was writing for the Huffington Post and when it was on there, I had left my email at the bottom of the post and I had hundreds of emails in 24 hours. This is me, I can't believe you've, you're you reading, it's like you're reading my mind. And so I decided to look to see what was there. And I did, of course, found uh, find Dr. Brené Brown. And there was a guy, uh, a Dr. Terrence Real, who'd written a book for men only, um, I don't wanna talk about it, where he talked about covert depression. But nowhere in the popular literature did I find this distinct connection Between perfectionism, destructive perfectionism, I should make more clear and depression and even suicidality. It's in the research. It's called socially prescribed perfectionism in the research where you're constantly trying to meet the, um, the expectations of other people constantly. It's like the better you do or the better you are, the better you should be. So you're always, you know, trying to create more, create Better create, make more money, make, uh, meet the expectations, meet the goals of everybody else. So um, I saw that and I thought, okay. And, you know, I had some encouragement. You ought to write this book. Oh, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and sure enough, I did. And I got encouragement from my family and some of my blogger friends. And so I wrote the book. Um, And it was published in November of 2019. So um, thank you. Thank you. I, I, it has over 60 exercises in it that are drawn directly from my therapeutic practice to try to help people who are, they might call themselves control freaks. They probably don't call themselves perfectionists, but there's something about that they know in their gut that something's wrong you know, they're trying to figure out what, why why they need so much control and why they can't talk about their painful emotions and why they hear this shame and self-criticism all the time. And so, you know, as I wrote about those people, I, I guess so many people, other people have decided, you know, I identify with that as well. Mm, I love that. Well, um, Thank you so much
0: um, for being here today. It's been great talking to you. It's been fascinating learning about what you're doing, Margaret. And um, I'm sure you're making a huge difference for so many people that you've been able to bring your message, bring what you do to many, many more people using uh, the Internet, which has been been awesome, I'm sure.
1: Well, I think to to your point that I, I think I was in a particularly rebellious mood the not- day I filled out your your questionnaire. And, and I, there is part of me that likes to challenge things. And certainly the book is a challenge yeah. to the mental health profession to say, we've got to wake up. Yeah. We've got to realize that there's this um, uh, syndrome of behaviors that if you see them fitting together, then you need to question more. You need to not accept just what's on the surface and realize that there could be something else going on um you know you need to look beyond the eating disorder look beyond the panic disorder look beyond uh the oh yes i have a couple glasses of wine a day that's the mind they're telling you about so you you have to do can they talk about their pain can they talk about do they talk about It's like, I just can't stop. Do they use phrases that indicate that they are destructively perfectionistic? And if you do, if you ask the right questions, and sometimes, you know, we're going to be able to save that person's life because they're going to find a person in a trusting relationship where they can finally talk about the things that they have never allowed themselves to even admit was there.
0: Mm, Yeah. So if people are listening and they want to get a hold of you, how should they connect with you?
1: My website has the creative name of DrMargaretRutherford.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that famous or infamous email is AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I have, uh, you can certainly go to my website and the podcast is there, the blog posts are there. The book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can help out your local bookseller and go order it from there. You can also order it from New Harbinger Publications as well awesome well thank you so and it's much. in and it's in ebook and audiobook as well as a paperback
0: oh that's great yeah well, thank you for being here and thank I,
1: you I hope gary you,
0: uh, staying connected as we move forward
1: sounds great thank you so very much take care oh.